your hosts have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates inside and outside of the courtroom. Both partners are experienced trial attorneys who have been board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Welcome back to For Better, Worse, or Divorce. I'm Jake Gilbreth. I'm here with Brian Walters, and we're going to be continuing our mental health and addiction and litigation series. So this time, and as a reminder, you know, Brian, you and I are mental health professionals, but we see, obviously, particularly in child custody cases, you know, it can come up in a divorce when you don't have kids involved. But particularly in child custody cases, you know, part of being family law litigators is we see personality disorders. A lot of times that's why somebody's going through a divorce or having a, a fight with their spouse or they're being accused of having a personality disorder. So last time we talked about narcissistic personality disorder, as a reminder, Brian and I are mental health professionals, but sort of talk about how we see this play out in our world and how it's used in the court system. So let's talk about borderline personality disorder. So without diagnosing, I don't know about you, Brian, but when I was an associate, first year associate working in family law, you know, one of the first cases I had had... I think it was the mom in this case had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And I remember sitting and I was talking to the child's counselor with uh, Jim Piper, who works with us now, but I worked for Jim Piper at the time and was talking about mom and the kids counselor, the way she described it, she said, borderline personality disorder, uh, they don't make friends, they take hostages. And that was always sort of stayed with me through the years of kind of how to describe it. So, you know, borderline personality disorder is something that's defined in the DSM-5. I'm not going to go through the diagnostic criteria, but that's the, I guess, scientific, it's got a scientific definition to it. But Brian, just sort of in your world, sort of as a a non-scientific approach, you know, you have some client call in, you know, wanting to hire you or the case is going on. They say, I think my wife or my husband has borderline personality disorder. How's that play out in your world? Right. And I, and my kind of uh, layman's definition of it is uh, that's a good one, by the way. But the one I've relied on a lot is these people, you are either their best friend or greatest enemy. There's no in between. And by the way, that can switch maybe in the same day back and forth. But right. there's no maybe in the, maybe in the middle of an argument. Right. <laughs> there's no gray area that you are you as a spouse or a friend or a whatever of a, or a child of, of one of these people is either out to destroy them or, you know, the greatest person ever. And which just isn't the world. Right. I mean, everybody's shades of gray to some extent. There's certainly some people on one extreme or the other. But that's a typical type of discussion that we have. I think, you know, the it's often in a situation where a spouse will call me up and say, or a parent and say, you know, I know I need to get out of this. I know this is not a healthy situation for me or my children, but I am, it's a hostage thing, right? I mean, it's like if I leave her or him, they are going to you know, come after me. They're going to try to see that I don't see my child. They're going to accuse me of every Mm -hmm. possible thing, you know, on the planet. And this is terrifying to somebody. And it's a, you know, and I think the DSMB, last time I looked at it, it was, you know, one or 2% of the population is probably a clear diagnosis of this, maybe more, but it seems to me to be 20%, 15%, 25%, some large way out of proportion percentage of the family law litigation when you count, I don't know, hours in court, for example. These people are very destructive and there is no negotiating with these people a lot of the time. That's how it plays out a lot of the time for me, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's right. And yeah, I mean, a lot of times sort of 
thinking through the initial consult or somebody's you know looking to hire us and stuff it it is rare that somebody comes in with an actual diagnosis right like my my spouse has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder maybe maybe they've been to treatment like inpatient treatment and there's a dual diagnosis with alcohol use or something like that but you know it's rare i mean if you're a therapist again speaking as a sort of a practitioner or family law if you're a therapist treating somebody it's you know you're not going to it's not really a reason to sit there and diagnose your patient with borderline personality disorder. You know, that's, I'm not sure if I'd continue to go to my therapist if I got his notes and he's writes in there, by the way, Jake's borderline personality disorder. Like, Why'd you write that down? I'll do that. And it's not really a motivation for them to do that, right? They, they're going to tow something, as I understand, so you get insurance coverage. So you see a lot of times we get these cases and they've been diagnosed with adjustment disorder or something benign. But then, you you know, when you really dig in and talk to the therapist or gather the, the uh, information from your client or from collateral witnesses, you can really tell that there is something seriously going on. I mean, and like you were saying, Brian, it's it can run the gamut from you see it in a lot of parental alienation cases. And, you know, it's like you were saying, it's that all good versus all evil. You're married to me or you're with me, so you're all good. You file for divorce, you're all evil. So you can't be around our kids anymore. And some it's just that simplistic, right? It's like, you're all evil, you can't be around the kids, and they don't even really bother to articulate a reason. And then, you know, the, the particular, and I'll say it, I mean, for people cases, you get the, the false accusations and stuff. You get somebody coming in being falsely accused of sexual abuse of a child or falsely accused of family violence or, or child abuse. And, and you know, sometimes it, it goes back to that, that underlying personality disorder of the person making the accusation. I mean, I always, I always say... Again, kind of lay person talking, but when you have these cases, it goes to what you were saying, Brian, about you know, these the percentage that we see in our world. When you have, particularly, we have family violence cases where there's accusations of family violence or child sexual abuse or other types of child abuse. You know, when you have that in a case, probably a you know, I don't know if it's an appropriate way to describe it, but I tell people all the time that means that somebody's crazy, frankly, and see if you have that type of accusation in the case. I mean, think about a child sexual abuse case. You kind of only have two options. I mean, it's just like a borderline personality disorder. It's either all good or all bad. You kind of have two options. The abuse happened, which is awful, obviously, horrible, or the abuse was made up, and that's awful and horrible, and both are devastating, devastating to families. And, you know, same for family violence, though, right? It's... it's Somebody accuses and says, you know, my spouse hit me. Well, that's either true or not. In either way, it's awful behavior on, on, on one of the parents. And then our judges and juries are often tasked with making that determination, right? There's no gray area. There's no dad says he changed diapers, you know, 50% of the time. And mom says it was 5% of the time that he changed the diaper. It's a lot more than that. And it's really, really high stakes because, you know, depending on who you believe, it really it's going to obviously impact not only who has custody, but particularly when you have cases with physical sexual abuse of a child, somebody's going to be probably going to be supervised with that child. You know, either the parent making the accusation, if it's false, or the parent who actually did it. And I guess probably we'll sort of turn the topic to how this could handle litigation. The worst, I guess, and best phone calls or cases that I, that I take are when we have the opportunity to, to help in that situation, right? Where it's the false accusation and you actually have the opportunity to go and prove that or when it's happening, right? And you go in there, you can prove that it is happening. I mean, those are gut-wrenching cases, but that's it's such high stakes and it can so easily be mishandled. And, you know, it's a hard enough job for judges or juries to figure out who's lying in these situations. And then you compound that with poor representation or not being prepared or not knowing all the evidence from a lawyer. It's people come to us all the time halfway through it. And, you know, something awful's happened in court. 
and you're going, how on earth did that happen given these facts? And it's just, then you read a transcript and you're like, well, no wonder the judge didn't buy this or no wonder the judge did buy this and it's not true given how it was presented. So I guess, uh, I mean, Brian, on that comment about how many of these cases that you see that have, let's say, let's call it borderline personality disorder, you know, how many, well, I guess backing up before we even talk about going to trial, what do you do, right? I mean, they don't have the diagnosis, but there's these, you know, suspicions, just like somebody comes to you and talks about their spouse having a drinking problem. They may not be diagnosed with a drinking problem, but, you know, they can tell the stories of hitting alcohol or 10 drinks a night or passing out drunk or PWIs. Like, what do you do as a litigator to prove that to a judge or a jury? And yeah, and just to be clear, we we have represented people that have the BPD diagnosis as our clients. And then we're in the, yeah. you know, and they make these horrible accusations against the other side. We don't, they don't have a diagnosis. You don't wear your diagnosis on your head, even if they had one. And it's very difficult all the way around to know who, I mean, child sexual abuse is a, is a good example. No, how would you know, right? I mean, there's, unless there's a video of, you know, surveillance camera of it, which is, I've yet to see that case, you know, do you, it's he said, she said, or it actually is not even that it's he said, or she said, the kid said, or I, you know, or the something, something, you know, happened and child had some you know, some um, medical condition or whatever. And it is impossible. And all we can do is, you know, try to ask the hard questions is, you know, how certain are you about that? Or, or, you know, is there anything that could be misconstrued and then represent those folks as they try to, you know, to protect their children as they see fit? And I agree with you. It is, you know, it is high stakes when that happens because you make that allegation against your, say, a wife accuses her husband of, sexually molesting their four-year-old daughter. Make that allegation. You're never going to co-parent with that parent, with that dad again. And if right. it's not true, and the judge doesn't believe it's true, again, it's very, very difficult to ever disprove a negative. If it's if you don't convince a judge that that's true, be aware that the judge is, is going to view that as the psychological equivalent of what you're accusing your husband of. And vice right. versa for the, and it's, you know, it's not always this way, but it usually is. The, you know, if the husband's accused of something, here's the bad news. The judge doesn't know what's true, right? Someone comes in with an emergency restraining order my husband touched my daughter. Well, what are they going to do? The judge doesn't know if that's true or not. They're going to probably be cautious. And they're probably going to say to the dad, you can't be alone with your daughter for a while until we figure this out. And it's almost like it's guilty till proven innocent, right? The backwards from what we're used to. And there, and then there's a long process of digging out of that hole and convincing a mental health professionals, a court that it's not true. But if you do get to that point, then I think things flip the other way it is i mean yeah i mean and, and back to the diagnosis right it's, it's kind of a sword in the shield right it's, i've seen people be falsely accused of you know borderline personality disorder because i've yet to see the case where somebody stands up and goes yep you're right i actually did hit my spouse you're right i did hit my child that what, what she's saying is true what he is saying is true no well they get up there and say this person's crazy and it could be absolutely true and i've had those cases where it's absolutely true absolutely true that the abuse happened and i would thinking thinking through off the top of my head every single one of those cases my client was accused of having some personality disorder either narcissistic or borderline personality disorder i've had cases where a mental health professional comes in and says i think that and then when it turns out i think you know the credible evidence was that it actually did happen but nobody wants to think that abuse happens and so 
they use this as a, as a shield, right? I'm accused of something. Ah, my spouse is crazy. She's borderline. You know, she's just borderline. She's making it up. And so it cuts both ways. And it just goes back to how important it is to present your case to the court. I guess let's talk a little bit about kind of evaluation, since I mentioned in that case, there's a psychologist. So, you know, a lot of times when there's these accusations or there's, you know, some concern from the judge that there's a personality disorder or just because there's an accusation being made both ways, the court can order psychological evaluations of the parents. They can order custody evaluations, which usually but don't have to include psychological evaluation. And then you have a, a psychologist, you know, coming in and, and doing a battery of tests and talking to collaterals. And, and so we see that a lot, I think, in these, in these situations. And, you know, and then having a case where a psychologist comes in and says, you know, the, the mom or the dad is borderline personality disorder or really any personality disorder is, you know, a, a big deal in court. The, the courts are going to, at least in my experience, Brian, I'm curious about yours, but that the judges take that really seriously. If, they, if an evaluation is done by, you know, a PhD psychologist and they come in and think that this person has, a, this parent has a personality disorder. Is that your experience? It is. I mean, judges are looking for something concrete to grab onto. And, you know, mental health is not mathematics, right? It's not one plus one is two. It's like you said, you know, a battery of tests, uh, scientifically, you know, recognized principles. These are intelligent people who mean well, I'm sure, most of the time. But they're not perfect. There are different levels of competence, different levels of maybe concentration, different people. Certain very, very smart people can manipulate test results or, or tell people what they want to hear. And it's not perfect. And the other part of that is that a lot of the times those mental health evaluations are are less than less than certain. I mean, I think there's you know you can have a diagnosis or not, but it's again not one plus one is two. If if someone is not diagnosed with a personality disorder, that doesn't mean they don't have a set of serious problems, and vice versa. You could have a, a diagnosis of a personality disorder that's either incorrect or you know very barely over the the meter. So it's it, there's a lot of a lot of gray area with it, a lot of nuance, but it's at least something for the court to hang their hat on, and 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 they're. They're not necessarily going to rubber stamp it, but they're going to take it pretty seriously unless we can show, the other side can show that they didn't do the, the evaluation properly or a different mental health professional comes to a different conclusion or you know there's some reason for bias or being unfair or that it's not relevant yeah. to the very specific situation. Those are, the, those are your only defenses, but you're definitely behind the eight ball if you got a diagnosis against your client. Well, yeah, and again, it goes back to cuts both ways, right? I mean, I've, I've had cases where I've got the parent and the other side diagnosed borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder or presenting it to the judge or the jury. I have cases where my clients come to me and they've gotten the diagnosis and we don't agree with the diagnosis and we're looking at hiring rebuttal experts. You know, you're having that conversation. We've talked about this in other podcasts. You're having that conversation of, you know, do I want to take this to a judge or a jury, right? If judge so-and-so appointed this mental health professional to do an evaluation and you disagree with that mental health professional, that's kind of, it's, you know, like you said, Brian, behind the eight ball, going back to judge so-and-so and say, I disagree with the evaluator that you appointed. You know, you're having that discussion with the client and saying, maybe we should be talking to a jury about this. I mean, again, sort of speaking from experience, I mean, both of us, I think Brian tried, even the days of COVID, try more jury trials than uh, most other family law litigators. And, you know, you got to take that. There's a certain strategy behind when dealing with mental health professionals and mental health issues of whether or not you can have a jury do this or not. Because juries have a different attitude about mental health than judges do. And they have a different attitude about mental health providers than, than judges do. And, you know, frankly, if you disagree with Dr. So-and-so, who's always appointed by Judge X, 
and, and Judge X is going to go in there and rubber stamp, maybe not rubber stamp, but say, I appointed this doctor. I've seen her work all the time. I don't disagree with her. I've never disagreed with her. That's different than going in front of a juror of 12 people who's, you know, who's Dr. So-and-so? I don't, I don't know who that is. And probably have more skepticism towards the mental health professional than maybe the judge would. But it's a case-by-case basis. And I'd, probably the fourth time I've said it now, but it can really be screwed up by the lawyer, right? If you just don't handle this right, is these cases are complex. There is, it's a soft science, but there is a science behind it. And having the right experts lined up and understanding this case and having the experience could have a huge impact. Not just on who gets custody, but what's possession access look like? Where does everybody look? Do you live? geographic restrictions what it, it impacts all this stuff and it can go sideways real fast if it's not handled right i agree and you know just from our perspective it's these are probably the hardest cases that we handle the emotional impact the the consequences of of our performance just dealing with clients you know if you represent the BPD client, wow, that's a <laughs> that's a handful. That's a daily struggle to make them, you know, to meet their expectations. And if you're representing the, the person who's on the receiving end of a bunch of false allegations, it's really hard. You know, like we said, the fir- that first round of it is probably going to be very ca- the judge going to be very cautious, and it's going to be really disappointing for a perfectly innocent, wonderful parent to be restricted. And then, you know, is that my fault because I didn't? handle that right or is that just the way it rolls you know those are those are tough things for us we try i try not to talk too much about how hard our job is sometimes but this one these kind of cases are really really difficult for for everybody and by the way i think they're really hard for the judges as well and a jury and we've all been in jury rooms after hard decisions in cases like this and those 12 people struggle with it too for sure but I guess I'd probably wrap up the topic with kind of what we talked about when we talked about narcissistic personalities or as far as what to plan for with the divorce. And you know, just like when I have somebody calls in and we're starting the process and they're warning me that their spouse is narcissistic personality disorder. I have somebody calling in saying, I think my, my spouse is borderline. You know, it's kind of having this discussion that we've been having the last 20 or 30 minutes. It's kind of, you know, hang on to your hat. We're going to court. Because it, it's going to be a rough ride. It's it's rare that you have that personality disorder where you're not going to end up in a courtroom either on temporary orders or, or on final or on both. And you know you just got to be prepared for that because it doesn't work. Just like a narcissistic personality disorder, my my experience is it does not work giving in to the bully or the terrorist. You're just going to have to you know figure out what's best for your for your family and your kids, and you got to be prepared to go to court for that because you're probably going to get pushed in that direction by the other side. Yeah, it's it's real unfortunate, and there's a reason they feel like they're being they're being held hostage, which is that yeah, because if you try to leave, the price is going to be very high and emotional. You know, your child's relationship, financial, it's it's terrible. But I guess sometimes, very oftentimes, living with a person like that is even worse. Yeah. I mean, for, for you and your kid. Right. right. I mean, it's that's what all this is about at the end of the day. I mean, if you're going through a divorce and you don't have kids and you're married to a borderline personality disorder, you, it's good to know that, right? Because you know it's going to be coming forward and, and kind of, your divorce is probably going to look a lot like your marriage. I was taught, as, a, as a, Jim told me right off the bat, he used to tell clients, like, why would you expect your spouse to act any differently in your divorce than they did during your marriage? So there's not kids. It's good to know. But really, it's about these personality disorders and this whole series is how is this going to affect the kids? 
right? The judges, we're going to care about the marriage and how you know the relationship was good or bad and, and who's at fault. That matters. But what really matters is how is this going to impact, impact the kids? And these, uh, if you have this narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder or histrionic personality disorder or dependent personality disorder, anytime you have one of those in this case, then the, the judges, judge or the jury is going to have their antenna up that this is going to impact the child or the children. I and mean, that's why it's taken so seriously. So I would, I would say let's wrap it up with that. That's what we have for today. I'd like to let everybody know, if you like what you heard today, do us a favor and leave a review. That's very helpful. Uh, we really appreciate all the feedback that we've been getting, and we appreciate feedback moving forward. It helps us better this podcast. Always feel free to send us a message of any topics you want us to discuss, and we'd be happy to do it. And don't miss next week's episode when we talk about navigating histrionic and dependent personality disorders in divorce. So I'm Jake Gilbreth. Brian Walters, thank you very much. For information about the topics covered in today's episode and more, you can visit our website at waltersgilbreth.com. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of For Better, Worse, or Divorce, where we post new episodes every first and third Wednesday. Do you have a topic you want discussed or a question for our hosts? Email us at podcast at waltersgilbreth.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.